The year is 1990, and a killer is on the loose in Gainesville, Florida. A man who would murder five, all students. Without smartphones, the only information came through newspapers, TV, and radio. Over the span of four days, panic gripped the city and University of Florida. This is Four Days, Five Murders, and I'm Camille Respis. The man responsible for the nightmare is often remembered. And the victims' names? Krista Lee Hoyt, Sonia Jane Larson, Tracy Inez Paulus, Christina Patricia Powell, and Manuel Ricardo Taboada. Are painted on a memorial. Many pass by daily without knowing why it's there. Throughout this podcast, we will rarely mention the name Danny Rowling. But no matter what we do, his presence hangs like a specter over this project. In the coming episodes, we explore the trauma a moment in time can have on people and places, and how long a tragedy like this stays in a place like Gainesville. Driving down 34th Street in Gainesville, Florida, you will eventually come across a wall. It's about a quarter mile long and covered in graffiti. Its appearance changes almost daily with new artwork, including messages ranging from happy birthday to beat the knolls, to advertisements to join a new club at the University of Florida. But one rectangular panel at the wall's apex serves as a reminder of five lives lost in August of 1990. Krista Hoyt, Sonia Larson, Christina Christie Powell, Tracy Paulus, Manny Tabuada. It's the only piece of the wall that's more or less stayed the same for three decades. For some, like UF alum Yvette Carter, the memory of the murders and the fear surrounding them lives on. I do remember the wall being painted and that the wall keeps being repainted so it's fresh and that kind of area of the wall is sacred. I think it is a big part of Gainesville history. It's indelible. Others try to block out those same memories. And one of the case detectives, LeGrand Hewitt, thinks some people now in Gainesville don't even know a thing about the murders. I think the majority, if you went and polled the students, the majority of them wouldn't even know if you gave them the five names, who they were. They, they, some of them may say, well, those are the names that are down there on the Southwest 34th Street wall or something. But I think over time, people forget. So how does Gainesville remember? On August 24th, 1990, tragedy struck in Gainesville. Two 18-year-old UF students were brutally murdered in their apartment, and it would be two days before anyone knew. Scott Henrati was best friends with Sonia Larson, one of the victims. He remembers getting lunch with her and Christy Powell just hours before their deaths. And I'll never forget the lunch, kind of where we sat. You know, we talked about school, we talked about these things. Uh, we talked about how great it was and how much she had Summer B. Summer B is one of UF summer terms. How she was looking forward to class, just all the things that kids talk about going to college. Henrati said Sonia made plans to stop by his apartment later that day. But she never came by. 
and I know I know now that they were killed that night in the apartment. After not hearing from Sonia all day on Friday, Henrati stopped by her apartment on Saturday morning. No answer. He and his roommate stopped by again later that evening and saw a note on the door. He figured she must be out. So he left a note of his own for Sonia. The next day, Sunday, so the Sunday before school starts. The University of Florida's fall semester began the next day. Uh, it was in the afternoon, and I remember that we were at the pool that day. Henrati remembers talking with his buddies about being nervous for the first day of school, a freshman year. But we're going to grill out and, and uh, invite her over and, you know, have a little party again and just get to, you know, we had met some neighbors and, and it was all school starting and life was about to begin. And uh, we went over there, Brian and I, and it was a crime scene. And when we got there, there were, you know, a bunch of students out on the walk. There were police were there and, and kind of the rest is history. Somewhere in that mob of students at the newly established crime scene was Alexis Galbraith. She was returning to her apartment at Williamsburg Village after getting breakfast with her friend Sarah. The parking lot was surrounded by caution tape. She thought maybe they were repainting the parking lot. Galbraith would soon learn that Larson and Powell had been murdered in their apartment, in the building right next to hers. What was really creepy is that the night before the night that they got murdered, I was on the back porch talking on the phone with the door open. And, you know, through all the news media throughout the years, I guess he was sitting in the woods watching. So that was kind of creepy. I got really lucky because he could have changed his mind and said, oh, I want her, you know. Like Henrati, Tanya Blaszczowski was also friends with Sonia and Christy. She was about to start her freshman year at UF and the trio planned to room together for the fall semester after meeting during UF summer term. Blaszczowski recalls how she came to Gainesville a week later than planned after deciding to not rush a sorority. Sonia and Christy were planning on doing so, though. That Sunday, she arrived to campus and waited to meet up with Christy. Then she got a call from their fourth roommate. She said, I just got back into town and tried to go to our apartment, and there are two dead bodies in there. Blaszczowski was traumatized. Still, she decided to return to UF and not let the horror ruin her dream of being a Florida Gator. And as Galbraith remembers, campus wasn't the same as the fall of 1990 continued. I think there was a lot more precaution. Like, people would have, like, pepper spray and, um, you know, I don't think people were getting deliveries, and I think there was a lot more heightened not-to-be-alone kind of thing. While he wasn't a student, longtime Gainesville resident Earl Hatch still remembers what life was like in August 1990. All of a sudden, there was a murder, and uh, the whole town was shook. And then the next day, there was, uh, it continued, and then the whole town was gripped in fear. Uh, gun sales were up. People were afraid to go anywhere. Uh, it was very gruesome, especially the way he uh, uh, posed the bodies. Galbraith has tried to block the memories out. And oral history program director Paul Ortiz says forgetting is a common coping mechanism. I do think a problem that we have in this society is in our inability to remember the past and in our inability to kind of process and talk about you know, tragic events. 
Um, if we only talk about the good things, then we're like leaving out a big part of the story. And if we forget about this hideous, you know, incident of mass murder, um, we're also forgetting the victims. But even though she tries to forget, Galbraith says it's affected how she parents her children. Well, I think it makes you kind of be aware of your surroundings. So I would say that I'm definitely a more cautious parent. And I'm always worried about, you know, safety. And um, I would say that it just made me, I always tell my kids to pay attention to their surroundings. Another former UF student, Pegeen Hanrahan, has similar thoughts. I always preach safety with them, you know, keeping doors locked. Um, I don't, you know, let them leave home without uh, a friend or something along those lines. But again, I think part of what was so shocking um, with respect to these crimes is that uh, several of them were not alone. They were together. They were in their own homes. They weren't, you know, out wandering the streets or anything like that. Hannah Han was starting her first semester of grad school at UF when the murders started. She remembers how the three guys in her engineering group reacted. This was really their first introduction to Gainesville. And I remember the three of them uh, stayed together and several of them were gun owners and they had their guns and they were sleeping in an apartment together. And I think at first to me, that seemed kind of unusual. I mean, I hadn't ever remembered, at least at that stage of my relatively young life, uh, men being frightened, but I think after um, Manuel Taboto was a victim as well, I think that that emphasized that it wasn't just women. Years later, Hanrahan would become mayor of Gainesville. She saw how the crimes affected the Gainesville Police Department in the city of Gainesville and says it left an indelible mark. I know that those, including uh, Chief Jones and, and Sadie Darnell, have... Um, kept at the forefront of their law enforcement careers, really focusing on the families that are left behind, focusing on sensitivities to the people who have been victimized by such a violent crime. Hanrahan was the mayor when the man responsible for the murders was executed. But that's not something she chooses to remember. For her, it's something the city will never separate from its past. We don't want to remember him. We don't want to recognize him in any way. Um, we certainly don't want him to be, um, you know, anything. I mean, I, I'm getting emotional just even thinking about it. So we didn't do anything to recognize that day. And for someone who knew Sonia, Blazjowski says losing her friend has affected building personal relationships. To this day, there's only certain people that I will connect with. I do think I've pushed a lot of people away if they try to get too close to me because Christy and I came, became so close so fast that I really think that my subconscious fears that. And so I hold on to one good friend from my childhood, but everybody else I keep in a, you know, a periphery, you know, they can always count on me and call me for stuff, but I don't, I don't go out and get buddy, buddy with, um, with anybody. And that was never like that. And so, but um, ever since those days, it's always been like that. 
But Earl Hatch had a different experience. He remembers how people got closer during the troubled times. People would uh, tend to band together, you know, for safety number. So, you know, the people that stayed would, uh, you know, several people sleep together in one apartment. Although he didn't know any of the victims, the murders impacted multiple aspects of his life, including his work as a contractor. It affected everybody who lived in the town, uh, and where I lived was about two miles from the murders. So, uh, you know, the police presence was very heavy. Uh, a lot of people just stayed home. Uh, a lot of the students, right, were just uh, had just come back to school. Uh, their parents just had them leave. They they until this was over with. They just left town. So, it it like I say, it gripped the whole town. Hatch remembers working on a job in the courthouse leading up to the 1994 trial. The Alachua County Courthouse, which is now the Family Law Center, which at the time was the courthouse right by the Bodidley Plaza, um, had to remove a fuel tank for their old uh, boiler system. They used to have fuel oil for heat. So I got that job, and I had to hurry, and I had to work through from Christmas to New Year's, and I had to get it done because they were preparing for the Danny Rowling trial. And so we worked uh, our, pretty much around the clock for a week and a half to get it done. Earl's neighbor, Marcus Dietrich, was also working in town at the time. Dietrich was a substance abuse counselor in the psychiatric hospital at Chan's. Dietrich says while the town felt safer after there was a suspect in custody, he and a colleague knew the information didn't add up. The news media was describing the suspect as a man who suffered from schizophrenia. But Dietrich and his colleague, a psychiatrist, knew that someone with that thought disorder would not be mentally fit enough to stage bodies after a murder. They're capable, potentially, of you know, a crime of, because of the voices they're hearing or something, but... The rest of the story, it doesn't fit. And so we had that immediate response like, no, the real person is still out there. He remembers one instance of some young women standing behind him at Kmart buying packs of ammunition. There was not much anybody else talked about. And you heard people say, well, I'm going to have a baseball bat under my bed or this or that, or we're leaving. And so it was a very unusual and very anxious time. Dietrich and his wife had already planned a vacation to the Dominican Republic for the weekend after the bodies were found. But the funny thing was, we were, you know, we were there on the first day and we at the hotel and I turned the, the TV on and it just happened to be on CNN. And the first thing I see in the Dominican Republic is Spencer Mann and Sadie Darnell giving an update. <laughs> you, could just, you just couldn't get away from it. Former UF student Lauren Poe also noticed how Gainesville's image shifted because of the murders. Anywhere I would travel, uh, and, and I would, you know, people, one of those normal questions, hey, where are you from? And I say Gainesville, Florida, and immediately they associated us with those murders. Uh, that was our um, calling card for a long time. Poe had gone to Westwood Middle School with Krista Hoyt, one of the victims. He says Hoyt was the kind of person that others enjoyed being around. As Gainesville's current mayor... He hopes future generations of residents and students will continue to learn about and share this part of Gainesville's history. I think it's important to remember how we did come together as a community and how we supported each other and, and worked to protect one another and uh, 
you know, help each other move on from just senseless violence and tragedy. And, uh, you know, during, during crises uh, like that and like the one we're going through now, uh, it, it does allow us to grow and evolve uh, as, as a community. And, and I think Gainesville came out stronger and um, more unified uh, because of uh, the, because of how we had to, to process and, and deal with that tragedy. And one of the biggest testaments to remembering the tragedies of August 1990 stands tall on 34th Street, 30 years later. Memorial Wall co-creator Adam Tritt first painted the memorial section of the wall with his friend Paul Chase shortly after the murders. There were small um, memorials all over the town. And we thought it would be helpful if there was one central place and the apex of the wall seemed to be a good place for that. Tritt says painting the iconic black, white, and red section was a rather spur-of-the-moment decision. Oh, we had no idea what the hell we were doing. We, we headed to Walmart on a scooter, and uh, me and Paul, I think we were complaining, uh, arguing about who would ride in the back, and finally I said, it's my scooter, you get in the back. And we just bought whatever paint they had left over, you know, oops paint, that's cheapest. So that's why we chose those colors, because they were cheap. They were like, a, you know, a buck a gallon or two bucks a gallon. And I think we spent eleven twenty-five or something like that. Even now, years after painting the memorial, Tritt says it was never supposed to be permanent, and the wall follows him. On his website are numerous references to reporters contacting him in milestone years. But one of the most interesting stories he shares involves his son. My son, who was in Melbourne High School for two years, uh, learned about me in his law class. I believe the subject was decriminalization, and uh, the wall came up as an example. My name came up in it. And he's sitting there and he says, I don't know, I don't know what to do. It's just, they're talking about you in class today. After a decade, Tritt was ready to move on. Ten years later at some event where there were awards given of various sorts regarding the wall and the wall was, that section was designated as a landmark. I was standing next to Sadie Darnell, who is your sheriff now. And uh, she was still a communications officer at the time, I believe. And I said to her, I said, well, Sadie, you know, you lost your chance to arrest me then. What's the statute of limitations? She says, I don't think there is one. I said, well, you can arrest me now. Even though the wall means so much to so many, Tripp believes it's time for a change. Tripp goes on. Uh, I, have, I offer to paint over it many times myself. No one knows what the hell it is. I mean, do they? Do new students know what it is? Tripp who does not support the death penalty, took to his blog the day the murderer was executed, writing that he does not believe the wall supports peace. Here's what he said. This is perpetuating violence, and the students deserve more than that. They deserve better than that. Their families deserve better than that. They deserve better than a wall and vengeance. But some victims' loved ones disagree, including Tanya Blazjowski. For it to be almost 30 years and for that wall, to be upkept, I I truly can't tell you how much that 
that means to me every single time I drive by it. And Earl Hatch says it helps everyone remember. It's coming up 30 years now, and, and uh, those uh, five students' names are still on the wall there on 34th Street. And uh, every time they get painted over, uh, somebody comes, and a lot of times it's uh, Sadie Darnell, our sheriff, uh, they come and repaint the wall. So I think that that's part of Gainesville's history forevermore. And I think in in next 10 years, you'll be doing another special on the 40-year anniversary. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever leave Gainesville's history. Students who were on campus during the murders come back to one place in Gainesville when it comes to the memory of that time. The great thing about that is um, folks, you know, I'd spray-painted over it a couple times and Somebody comes back and puts it back on, and it just tells you something. As long as I've been here, um, the walls out on 34th have always been open, and people have put whatever they want. But even in the 30 years since this has happened, you know, the, 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 the names of the people are still there and are redone. And if anybody, you know, damages it, they're immediately done and redone is memory to the students. So I, th I think that's probably the best symbol of the energy of it is there will always be a remembrance of what happened to them. For Mike Brown and Chris Morris, both UF alumni, the wall is a mainstay in the community. Samuel Proctor Oral History Program Director Paul Ortiz says it's important for the community to remember Gainesville's history, good and bad that the memorial keeps the victims' memories alive and creates a forum for people to discuss tragedies. That section is really considered to be like a sacred space of memory. Ortiz says that trying to ignore the past is a form of repression. It means that we've silenced them. I mean, the murderer silenced them in the first place. Um, if we forget them, we forget their stories, their, sub their, their subjectivities, you know, their own, you know, frailties, their triumphs, their aspirations. If we try to cover that up, then we're also playing a role in silencing, you know, those stories. Ortiz says that learning about and thinking about tragedies helps us to be sympathetic. And I think that's one of the fundamental uh, aspects of oral history. It's a chronicle of, of, of endurance, of human endurance, human survival. But more than that, it's also a chronicle of how we transcend moments of tragedy. So we accept the tragedy, and then we, we remember, we build upon that. We don't ignore the fact that this terrible thing had happened. We can't. I mean, that, will, that event will always be inscribed in the history of Gainesville. Bernie Marrero, a health and rehab psychologist, has worked with patients who suffer from PTSD, some specifically from the murders. He says it's important for people with trauma to have the opportunity to express their concerns and share what is on their minds. The sense of well-being that we took for granted is no longer there. Now there is a, a sense of alarm and, you know, kind of wondering, my gosh, can this also happen again? Can this happen to my child? Can this happen to my my uh, son or daughter who are students at the University of Florida? So, I mean, it's it has a cascading effect on all of us emotionally and, and cognitively. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult kind of trauma to, to be able to deal with. Ortiz echoes similar opinions about trauma and loss. 
He says sharing the same memories with others, both negative and positive ones, allows us to cross boundaries and find similarities with one another. We uphold the value of human life uh, and traumatic events such as that, you know, such as the mass murder really allows us to kind of, um, I think, come together, but also kind of uh, reminds us about, you know, frailties, tragedy. Um, we need some way of talking about tragedy. A tragedy that still affects Blazjowski 30 years later. You'll learn to live with it, but you won't get over it. For law enforcement in a small college town, the murders could be quite overwhelming. But what happens when a victim turns up as one of your own? Now these police officers worked with Krista. They knew her personally, and that was a terrific crime scene that they had worked in all night long. And now they had to come out and tell us. And I just remember them pacing back and forth in the room and wringing their hands, and they were just so upset. That's next time on Four Days, Five Murders. You've been listening to Four Days, Five Murders, a production of the Innovation News Center at the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications. I'm your host, Camille Respis. This episode was reported by Annalise Linder, Anthony Montalto, Audrey Mostek, and me, Camille Respis. This episode was edited by Annalise Linder and Anthony Montalto. Our producers are Josh Williams and Katie Hyson. Executive producers are Moni Basu and Ryan Vasquez. And thank you to the friends and families of the victims who shared their stories with us.